Eric Shesky's Weekly You Demon. Alright, episode 70. I'm packing a lot into this week, but... I determined to keep it under 30 minutes! I think there's a line between entertainment and narcissism. I think it's crossed somewhere around minute 28. So this week we're continuing our sketch of Western civilization in order to help you develop an historical perspective. We're hitting the years 1000 to 1200-ish. We also have lightning segments and, if time permits, a rumination about my dad in the Korean War and the Corona beer virus. Enjoy. Europe in 1000, the dawn of the glory of Christendom. This is a splendid era. We left off last week at the end of the 900s. Europe was taking shape. It was mostly Catholic, Russia having converted officially in 988. A notable exception was Hungary. Hungary, you may recall, is where the fierce steppe peoples, the Magyars, had settled after getting beaten by Otto I, the first Holy Roman Emperor. Many Magyars had accepted baptism, many hadn't. In 1000, Stephen I, a Christian, won a civil war against the pagans, and Hungary came under the Roman Catholic Church. So with a few small exceptions, all of Europe was now Catholic. Two of the three existential threats, the Vikings and the Magyars, were gone. The third, the Muslims, were fading away, wrapped in a fierce internal war between the Abbasids, which were Sunni, and the Fatimids, which were Shiites. The Dark Ages were over. So, mark 1000 in your mind for that proposition. Dark Ages gone, Middle Ages begin. Again, not technically accurate, I suppose, although no one (laughs) freaking agrees on what Middle Ages mean. I think that's the best demarcation you can get. Dark Ages end, 1000-ish, Middle Ages have begun. At this time in Central and Western Europe, you have three young kingdoms, the Capetians in France, William the Conqueror in England, and the Holy Roman Emperor in Germany. Alright, we have to do a quick word about William the Conqueror, also known as William the Bastard, and William of Normandy. They're all the same dude. In 1066, William won the Battle of Hastings. William was a French vassal of the Capetians, thereby tying together the French and English for the next couple of hundred years, which would bring us things like the Hundred Years' War, Joan of Arc, etc. It also inextricably tied together the French, the English, and the Nordic. Remember, William of Normandy. He was a French vassal, but he was Norman, which means he was of Viking heritage. Normandy was the only Viking settlement on the continent. So again, etch 1066 into your head. If you're talking to a snob and you don't know the significance of 1066, he'll think you're an ignorant slob. <laughs> well, he'll probably still think you're ignorant because as a snob, he needs that slob-snob binary to make himself feel good. <laughs> but anyway, 1066, crucial year. Around this time, Europe was also getting wealthy. Money had actually returned after the Vikings had taken all of it. (laughs) 
the European population was surging. There were no more attacks. So they're not losing tons and tons of people to slavery because that's what Vikings like taking the most slaves and good looking wives. Uh, <laughs> I think I've mentioned a couple of times that the, the theory is Scandinavian women are so good looking because the Vikings took the best looking women for themselves. Anyway, and there were no plagues. Plagues had been a problem, but there are no plagues. And they had improved agricultural techniques, like the horse harness, that allowed farmers to use horses instead of oxen for plowing. These are huge changes, and population was surging. At this time, the Byzantine Empire was undergoing a revival under a string of uh, rulers called the Macedonians, the greatest of which was Basil II, who was a very capable emperor, and he was also well served by the Muslim internal wars. That allowed him to expand the Byzantine Empire, making it very powerful once again. Ah, but then came the Seljuk Turks. This was a bad thing. <laughs> These are yet another steppe peoples. By the way, does everyone know what I mean when I say steppe people? The steppes are that huge internal landmass from like the eastern edge of Hungary to northern China. Tons of people live there. The heartland of that area today is called the Stands, like Kazakhstan. It's, it's Borat country. One of my favorite writers of all time, P.G. O'Rourke, caused a small stir back in the 1980s when he referred to the people from this area as the, quote, urine colored people, unquote. <laughs> yeah, because there are all sorts of ethnicities, but they're all different shades of yellow. I mean, freaking O'Rourke. <laughs> it was a pretty bold thing to say, but he might be the funniest political writer ever. Anyway, the steps are important because every few hundred years they overflow out of the steps, which are highly rugged and breed fierceness and invade Europe. China had a similar problem. They'd often invade China on the, on the eastern edge of the steps. That's why you had the Great Wall of China. But in Europe, it's the Huns, the Magyars, the Mongols. Those are all steppe peoples. And the Seljuk Turks. These guys were among the baddest of the bad. The Byzantine Emperor for a while thought he might be able to convert them to Orthodox Christianity, which would have been freaking huge. But he couldn't overcome that great cultural divide. Vodka or hash? <laughs> there, there is a line of historical thinking that said peoples on the eastern edge of Europe into the steppes converted to Islam or Christianity based on whether vodka or hashish was popular in their culture. Russians drank vodka, they converted to Christianity. Seljuk Turks and their holy men, the shamans, used hashish, they became Muslim. The Seljuk Turks in particular threw in with the Abbasids, or the Sunnis, and they defeated the Fatimids, who were Shiite. A branch of them then invaded Asia Minor in the later 1000s, taking over large swaths of it and prompting the Byzantine Emperor of Constantinople to call for help. And so started the Crusades. Interesting aside, the Seljuk Turks there in Asia Minor, Asia Minor is, is today's Turkey, they call themselves the Rome Seljuk, R-U-M, the Rome Seljuk Turks, Rome. They saw themselves as the true inheritors of Rome, which I didn't know how that even works. I mean, different language, different everything. <laughs> but... They kind of looked at themselves as the new Rome. Anyway, the Seljuk Turks were fierce converts to Sunni Islam. They started harassing pilgrims to the Holy Lands. They were threatening 
the Byzantine emperor. So the emperor called Europe, got him on the bat line. Let's <laughs> say we need help. The West was strong and itching to go on the offensive after 400 years of playing defense. It would be the first offensive launch outside of Europe since the Roman Empire. So, 1095, the Crusades start. Etch that year into your brain as well. There'd be eight total major Crusades. So, what else was during this time period? Well, St. Francis and St. Dominic. I started the segment by pointing out that Europe was becoming very wealthy again. That prompted a backlash. People started seeing some problems with the wealth, the greed, the avarice. And they started thinking we need to go back to a simpler form of spirituality. So when St. Francis and St. Dominic came along preaching a holy poverty, it caught on like wildfire. 1209 is when the Franciscans were formed. If you want to, you can etch that into your brain, although most people don't know that year. But 1209 is when the Franciscan order started. And again, it's, it's significant because that tells you there was a holy poverty backlash against the growing wealth. Well, if there's a growing wealth, then that must mean the Dark Ages were over and have been over for 200 years. This is also the time when the papacy started getting reformed. Now, as a Catholic, you have to admit something. In the 800s and 900s, there were lots of bad popes. <laughs> the history is not kind to Catholics in those years. Some shocking atrocities took place, uh, and decadence would often make its way to the papal throne itself. The Holy Roman Emperor, in many ways, saved the papacy from itself. Saved it from Italian decadence, the emperor started asserting a lot of influence over who would become pope, and that resulted in a lot of good men becoming pope, men who cared about religious and spiritual matters. Men like Gregory the Seventh, who, I guess ironically, would fight Henry the Fourth, the Holy Roman Emperor, on the investiture crisis. I can't go into it here, but etch 1077 into your heads. That was a high mark of the battle over whether the emperor could appoint bishops. That's basically the investiture crisis, or conflict. To answer that question, he can't. <laughs> but but that was just merely the current ongoing battle that had been going on since Constantine converted and called the First Ecumenical Council, and then sat and presided over it. It's the intertwining between the secular and the spiritual, a thing that is simply unavoidable in a sacramental world like we live in, body and soul, mundane and spiritual. It causes constant problems. When society is religious, like it was in the Middle Ages, it takes on enormous political importance. When society is irreligious, like it is today, it takes on small political problems, like Pope Francis and his relentlessly leftist agenda that, thankfully, he can't implement because of his limited political influence and also because the Holy Spirit reigns in men from committing heresy. This is also the era of Clooney. We have to go back just a little bit before 1000. We have to go to 910, when a nobleman founded a Benedictine monastery in Cluny, France. He basically stipulated that it would be free from that secular spiritual problem I mentioned a few minutes ago. No lay or religious would have any authority over the monastery, except the Pope. But since the Pope was on the other side of the Alps, that basically meant Cluny was independent. And this was huge as was the fact that its first abbots were capable and holy. Very good administrators, but very holy. And by the way, that's one thing you should always get in your head if you're a Catholic, or even if you're not a Catholic looking from the outside. Being a saint or being holy doesn't mean you're an administrative doofus. 
<laughs> Go look at Thomas Dubay's book, A Closer Look at the Saints. He points out that that idea that, oh, they're just so saintly, they can't be concerned with worldly things. That's why they're incompetent. That's just false. A holy man, a saintly man, he'll be good within the spheres he influences. St. Teresa Avila, possibly the greatest female saint of all time, was a very good administrator. So anyway, Clooney was blessed with a lot of these type of men. Good administrators, but very holy. And then it took on the reform of other monasteries throughout Europe, and became highly influential in all things. Political leaders would seek guidance from its monks. By 1050, it's estimated that 1,450 monasteries were directly dependent on Clooney in some way. They also reformed the liturgy. A lot of what we know as Catholicism today and its liturgy and its rituals are taken from the Cluniac reforms. Alright, that's going to be it for this week's history lesson. We're going to start next week with the Mongol invasions and talk about Thomas Aquinas and what we call it the climax of medieval Christianity. Alright, let's do some lightning segments. My piece appeared on Front Porch Republic. It's called uh, Confused and Contented on Gardening. I was pretty stoked to be on the Front Porch Republic site. It was started, I think, by Bill Kaufman. Bill's that guy with the massive vocabulary. He wrote one of my favorite history books of all time called Look Homeward America. He wrote the screenplay Copperhead, the movie from 2013 with Peter Fonda. And so again, I was pretty stoked to be on this this magazine, this on this e-zine that has affiliation with Kaufman. They actually have a uh, print journal as well that just started last year. I have to subscribe to it. Anyway, the article is about gardening and how I use gardening to wall myself off from a world I don't understand. Like, why can't I use the F word that ends in a T? <laughs> okay, that example didn't make it into the essay. Uh, and to be honest, uh, it was nice to see my name in print again. I've been on a 15-year hiatus, except for a piece about Pure the Skeptic that appeared in Philosophy Now about five years ago. Anyway, check it out. It came out April 1st. It should be up there for quite a while. Yeah, I mentioned on my blog last week that instead of singing Happy Birthday while washing your hands and time it, you can say the Jesus Prayer five times. You know, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you pause a second and say it again. It takes that take about 19 seconds total to do it five times. And I pointed out that you know the Jesus Prayer it has a long, long tradition. J.D. Salinger's Franny and Zoe, and I make particular reference to Mount Athos, the manliest place on earth. To this day, that peninsula in Greece does not allow any women. Men only. I think there's like documented history. Two women made to Athos <laughs> have been allowed on the peninsula. It's on my bucket list to get there. I just gotta get to Mount Athos. Would love it. <laughs> also linked to an article about Celebrities getting all sorts of blowback. I don't know who the celebrities are. I have to go back and look at the article, but they're making videos saying, telling everyone to stay home, shelter in place. We're all in this together. And <laughs> when you look, you can see like they got like a fitness gym in the back, or you know, just through People Magazine that they live on this mansion with this built-in swimming pool and all sorts of amenities. <laughs> People stuck in their apartments in Brooklyn are just freaking furious. <laughs> It's like, ah, I'm glad to see that blowback. I just wish the public would grasp this more often. <laughs> that celebrities are not worth listening to on any matter at all. 
unless maybe it's acting and how to make money in business and show business that they're good at and I respect them for that. The article also interestingly points out that the Ellen DeGeneres is known as the nastiest person on earth. <laughs> and and that's not a gross exaggeration. I forget the exact quote, but it's just like, yeah, everyone knows that she's just a freaking horrible person. And I've long suspected that. Uh, but I think it's been covered up. You know, one, because that is a venerable Hollywood tradition. I mean, even in their contracts with major studios, actors and actresses are required to maintain a certain public persona. If they don't, they're in breach of contract. So this whole idea of a false persona presented to the public as reality, both in the movies and in real life, that goes back frick a hundred years. So it's nothing new that Ellen DeGeneres would come off as this charming person on her talk show, but in reality she's just a nasty person. And I think it also though has something to do with the fact she's a lesbian. <laughs> I don't think anyone wants to out a lesbian for acting like a... Uh, well, a lesbian or <laughs> our stereotypical vision of a lesbian. I tell you what, man, Bill Burr has been killing me. Every podcast episode, he's just ranting about the people who refuse to comply with the social distancing guidelines. <laughs> I mean, his rants match my gut reactions. But he uses the phrase selfish C. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how many times to refer to these people who just refuse to stop socializing cause them selfish seas and it kills me and again in my gut reaction I, as I agree with it I, I, I try to cut some slack to the people though because as I've pointed out I think this whole crisis in social distancing highlights the difference between introverts and extroverts you know, as an introvert I'm digging it lots of guys are Extroverts, I think it's calm. They probably feel like I do. You know, I, my in-laws had this thing at Houghton Lake. It was like 30, 40, 50 in-laws at Houghton Lake at the same time. And like by day, I don't know, one. <laughs> like by day three or day four, I am just crawling up the effing walls. And these are nice people. These are people I get along with. These are people I like. And I'm not just saying that because I listen to the podcast. <laughs> It's just, you're in this compound together, and you have no alone time at all. You pretty much have to drive like a mile or two to get away from it. You're just constantly at someone in your face. And it's just, I, after two, three, four days, I'm just like, I'm just spent. I'm just wiped out. Switch that over to the extrovert. I think that's how they're feeling. It's like, I'm going two, three, four, 21 days with no socializing at all, except for the people in my immediate household. And I think it's really hurting them. So I try not to have the reaction Bill Bird does and call him a bunch of selfish C's. But there is some truth to it. Just like I feel selfish when I wall myself off to go pray or, let's be honest, just freaking get away from it and zone out for a while. <laughs> there is some selfishness involved there. Or at least self-centeredness or self-regard. The only issue is, is it excessive self-regard? If it is, then you got a problem. The whole selfish sea thing reminds me of uh, Conan O'Brien a couple years ago, one of my favorite lines of all time in late night comedy. Some guy was getting all sorts of blowback because he used a C word or the P word or something to refer to a woman, and feminists were just outraged. 
<laughs> Going on, Brian says, I agree with the feminist. Yeah, I can't believe this guy used a body part to refer to a person. What a dick. So anyway, if you're one of those extroverts that just is like, I just, I just don't get it. I, 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 I can't just not say hi. Or as Bill Burr says, it's Gladys. I can't not speak to Gladys. It, just do this. Treat every person like they have really, really foul gas. And then get that distance between you and that person. Treat everyone like that. Except except for your immediate household, because if someone in your immediate household has it, you're screwed. That's my understanding anyway. You don't have to hate the person. You don't have to be angry at the person. You just need to give them wide berth. Just do that. And again, that doesn't make it easier for you as an extrovert. I'm not saying it does. But at least it gives you like an objective standard to use when it comes to socializing. And I have an idea, a proposal, if you will. When this crisis is over, if it ever gets over, <laughs> everyone needs to agree not to judge anyone who is exercising social distancing. So if someone didn't wave to you or someone didn't walk up and chat with you for small talk, don't judge them. Don't hold it against them. If they gave a 12-foot berth instead of the 6 feet, that's fine. If they didn't want to come over to your house because they didn't want to get the coronavirus, that's fine. You have to cut them unlimited slack. If all they're doing was exercising social distance, even if you thought it was extreme, why in the world did you wear the mask? It's, don't judge them. I haven't worn a mask yet. I might. I don't want to be judged for it. It's like, oh, Shesky is wearing a mask. What a freak. What a paranoid. It's like, no. During this crisis, whatever someone is doing to feel safe, get off their back walk a mile in their shoes in these times you really can't hold them responsible again especially if they're just exercising safety against an enemy that we can't see we can't smell <laughs> definitely can't smell apparently I guess that's the first thing to go when you get it <laughs> and against an enemy who the facts about change constantly I'm not sure a sentence made sense but I think you know what I'm talking about it's like every two days we learn something new about this disease or find out something that we thought was true a week ago is no longer true it's like Frank I'm just gonna go and wrap myself in a bubble and walk around it's just you live in a bubble already <laughs> kind of reminds me of my buddy Troy he throws big parties occasionally and he drinks a ton and at some point one of his best friends will stand up in front of everyone and say okay at this point Troy is no longer responsible for anything he says or does <laughs> I think that's the way it's got to be with Corona if this thing passes you can't hold anyone responsible because of the self distancing measures they took to keep themselves safe now you might hold them responsible for not exercising social distancing you know playing group basketball or something yeah maybe but if they're doing it to keep themselves safe and to stop this thing from spreading let it go. My dad was in the Korean War. Well, that's not true. <laughs> he signed up for the Marines during the Korean War, trained, was in line to get on the transport ship, and was called out of the line. He had failed his eye exam, which isn't surprising. He, he couldn't see. <laughs> he had cataracts his entire life. He had devised tricks and crutches to conceal it and get along as a normal person. But this latest dodge hadn't worked. 
so he was kept stateside for the entire war, and he was bummed out about it. I asked him once, you were a machine gunner. <laughs> they were killed first. Isn't it good you're kept back? And he admitted, yeah, 2020 hindsight was a good thing, but at the time, one, he terribly missed his friends who had shipped over, and two, MASH, notwithstanding, <laughs> the death toll in Korea was very low. I think I once heard one in 50 were killed. And three, and this is a crucial point, he hated dealing with the military Mickey Mouse stuff he had to endure during those three years. In Korea, he says, soldiers had real work to do, so the officers didn't bother him. That wasn't the case at the domestic bases. In other words, he had to take orders from his intellectual inferiors. Bored inferiors at that for three years. It's tough to do. Thomas Sowell tells a very similar story in his autobiography, incidentally, if you get a chance to read it. It's a pretty good book. Anyway, put another way, government officials had a lot of time in their hands, so they obsessed on little things. And they passed on those obsessions onto their subordinates, making their lives miserable. And here's the thing, we all do it. When you're bored or simply not busy enough, the non-essential preys in your mind. Shift to today and the corona crisis. Government oversight and regulation has fallen off like underwear from a drunken Kennedy. <laughs> states are jettisoning restrictions on doctors from other states working in their hospitals. Local ordinances aren't getting enforced. Tax filing deadlines are getting suspended. Governments have real work to do right now. They had the work that they're supposed to be doing, preserving the safety of its citizens. It's the work that every government is tasked with. It's the very first work for which people come together to form coalitions they eventually evolve into government. Safety. And now, during this crisis, the Mickey Mouse crap that government does is shown for exactly that. Mickey Mouse crap. Those petty rules that hamper business and development, they're gone or only weakly enforced. But before the crisis, our rulers would have assured us that all those rules and regulation restrictions, they're very, very important. But now we know they're not. I mean, if they were so important, government wouldn't stop enforcing them. They're still enforcing laws against murder, rape, armed robbery. They're still keeping water and electricity going. It's just the petty and stupid stuff that it isn't enforcing. I'm going to venture out into practical politics and I'm going to propose a rule. Or maybe I should say, I'm going to make a proposition, and here it is. If a government body stops enforcing a restriction, rule, or requirement during the crisis, that restriction, rule, or requirement must be stricken from the books and not brought back until the legislative body reviews it again. Just wipe it out. Get rid of all of it. Because we are seeing right now what's really important what's not important. And everyone, I mean, even government officials I talk to, will we'll say, yeah, the laws are freaking completely out of control. There's way too many laws to enforce. And I'd say, okay, if you're not enforcing it during the coronavirus, then get rid of it. We can bring it back. If there's a reason to have it, then we'll pass the law again. But let's have like a burning, burning away all the, the excess crap on the floor of the forest. <laughs> you know, let's get rid of it right now. Never bring it back unless it's reviewed, debated, and discerned. Yeah, we need this law after all. Then bring it back. I think you'll see a flower in a freedom in business development. A similar thing happened in Detroit, incidentally. When it declared bankruptcy, it was like all hands on deck for what was left of the government. Suddenly, businesses started cropping up everywhere. They didn't have the required permits, but no one cared. It's like, yeah, whatever. We don't have time to deal with that. Go ahead and start your business. 
And it started a renaissance of sorts that's still going on. Of course, as the wealth returns to Detroit, the tax eaters will be back, taking their pound of flesh, and they'll say it's to pay the police. You may be thinking that's kind of protection money. <laughs> but it's not to pay the police. It's not really for your protection. It's just one class taken from another class and distributing it among the people in their class. Very similar to one tribe taken from another tribe and distributing booty among their members. It's absolutely no different in practice. The, the difference between a tribe and the state is that membership is kind of fluid. You know, to join a powerful tribe, you kind of to marry into it or, or maybe rise up to the ranks and be taken as a slave. With government, you can join its ranks and maybe become one of that tribe. But in practice, it's really no difference. I mean, when you get right down to it, it's just no different than one person taken from another person and then given what they took to his or her cronies, friends, tribal members, whatever. So ironically, the establishment uses crises like these to justify big government. And I'll admit they have a point. To deal with big existential threats, you need a government to match it. I have no quarrel with the Roman Republic's use of dictators in times of crisis. I only suggest, or demand, beg, plead, <laughs> that when the threat passes and things return to normal, government shrink with it, just like the dictator was dismissed in Rome once the existential threat had passed. Instead, of course, it's, we argued that we need the massive government in place at all times. And then they won't have enough to keep themselves busy because there's no crisis, and they'll start doing all sorts of things, creating all sorts of mischief to justify their existence. And then we're back to living like my dad at the domestic marine base during the Korean War. That's it for this week. Go check out the Facebook page. Check out the e-blog. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>